have your Bibles, let's turn together to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33. While we turn there, I'll uh, share with you that Josh Ebelow mentioned to me on the phone yesterday that one of the greatest blessings that he had enjoyed and Allison had enjoyed in this season, this particular week, was the blessing of their Digging Deeper group. Uh, They just said they could not express how encouraged they were by the relationships and the way brothers and sisters in Christ had stepped forward to love them and to care for them. And so that's uh, that's twofold. I mention that for two reasons. Number one, we give praise to God for his people. Uh, Number two, I would encourage you uh, to be involved in a Digging Deeper group. This is how you begin to develop and build relationships in, in the life of this church. When we have our regular two services, it feels big. It feels distant. This is one of the ways that we shrink the congregation, that you get to know people who are close by you, and thereby you get to enjoy the blessing of those relationships uh, over the the coming years. We desire that you as members would be here a long time, that you would have deep relationships while you're here. We'll transition to chapter 33. I'll remind you we're picking back up in our study in Exodus I do want to thank uh, William Alderman for preaching for me last week. I want to thank Michael Alsop for leading the Lord's Supper, um, and also Steve Brown for leading various portions of worship. I appreciate so much their help uh, while I was gone. Chapter 33 now puts us in the place where the golden calf is behind us, and we learned that there are really important natural consequences that occur from those sins, but here... God begins to use those sins as an opportunity to teach his people about himself. And so we're going to pick up at chapter 33. We'll read the entire chapter and remember that this is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at the tent at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. 
Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Father, we recognize that we have entered in a sense with Moses into the conversation that you shared with him in that tent of meeting. We recognize that we have seen and heard wondrous things. We pray now that you would grant to your people the ears that we might hear what your Spirit says, that you would again be willing to use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. the base of Mount Sinai, following the events of the golden bull, it is as if God pulls himself back, as if he leaves his people to themselves for a season because the Lord is testing his people. Why would he do that? Because the God who began this great deliverance with the intention of making himself known is suddenly proven to be unknown by the very people he saved. So, will he abandon them? No. Will he leave them in the desert to die in unfaithfulness? No. But he will pull back his face for just a moment. He will create a space where they might long for him, space where they might begin to reconsider their lives in his presence. You see, the Lord uses their sins as an opportunity to teach them about Him. And He does the exact same thing with you and me. That's the reason I wanted you to read the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, section 5. It's a summary of one of the unique ways that God, in His providence, deals with us to teach us and shape us. Listen to it again. The most wise, righteous, gracious God often leaves his own children for a time in manifold temptations 
to the corruption of their own hearts. And he does this to chastise them for past sins. That's discipline them for past sins. To humble them by making them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts. And then to raise them to a closer, more constant dependence upon him for their support, to make them more watchful against all future occasions for sinning, and to fulfill various other just and holy purposes. If you've experienced this discipline, you know that in those moments when it happens to you, you don't know that that's what's happening. And you wish in those moments that God would whisper in your ear, hey, Sometimes I leave my children to experience temptation so that they begin to know and recognize how corrupt their own hearts are. I'm I'm disciplining you because of your sins. I might humble you so that you will know your need for me. But in the end, I will use this to make you more watchful so that you would be less prone to run astray. If I was to talk about God's providence, most of us would think in terms of the the pleasant surprises that God brings into our lives. It was the providence of God. I ran into this old friend that I hadn't seen in years. We'd talk about the way he orders events and circumstances and people so that something happens that is good that that I didn't expect. But here is an aspect of God's providence that most of us do not consider. So powerful is the Lord that he uses not only my sins and my failures, but all other things in all of creation to show himself. Why does he do this? To move me, to move you from knowing about him to knowing God personally. He does this to show us his glory, to help us know him and to know his goodness so that you and I will trust the Lord even when he feels far away. That's what our text is about. I'll break it down in three points this morning. A change of plans, a distant tent, a comfort in hearing. We'll start with a change of plans. There's two subtle changes that happen in the early verses of the text. First, God stops calling the Hebrew people my people, and now he calls them the people. And if you don't think there's much of a difference, married men, why don't you begin to refer to your wife as the wife instead of my wife? And she will remind you there's a big difference. One is completely impersonal. Second change that takes place in verse 2. Previously, God said, my angel will accompany you, which was implying that God's presence was going to be with them. And suddenly God says, I'll send an angel, like just an ordinary rank and file angel. And yet, if the change is missed in those first two verses, you cannot miss it in verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not be going among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. Do you remember where we were before the golden calf? God was giving instruction to Moses about how to build a tabernacle because God intended to come and to dwell right in the middle of his people. And all of the tents were to be constructed around that tabernacle. And the message was so clear. Other nations can have their stupid little idols. You're going to have the God of heaven dwelling right in your midst. 
The God of heaven willing to come down and live among you. And certainly, remember, there were parameters. There were curtains. There was distance. But now God's saying, there's not going to be an altar for sacrifice. There's going to be no no water for cleansing. There will be no lampstand to picture my light in your midst. There will be no bread to remind you that I'm the one who feeds you and nourishes you. There will be no incense going up to remind you that I always hear your prayers. There will be no ark. There will be no mercy seat where the priest can come and make atonement for your sins. There will be no place where I will sit among you amidst the cherubs. We studied that whole tabernacle so that when we come to this, we go, do you see what he could take away? What we would miss? Why does God seem to change his mind? Well, he says it's not safe. He says you're a stubborn people. You you refuse to lower your proud heads and embrace a relationship of faithfulness with me. In some ways, what the Lord does here is a merciful, rhetorical offer. God says, I'm going to pull back my holiness, my inability to tolerate sin, so that it doesn't override the original plan to get you to the promised land. You'll still experience an all-expenses-paid trip to the promised land, but I've already canceled my ticket. I'm not going with you. Would you think about what God is offering? Drive out their enemies. Take them to the promised land. Fulfill every promise for good. Deal with them by giving them a land that is beyond their wildest dreams. He's offering to bless them without giving them a relationship with Him. One pastor rightly said, this is exactly what most people want. He's right. How many people want a blessing from God without God Himself? They want to overcome, they want a God who will overcome their challenges, be on my side, take me to heaven when I die, make life great while I live, just the blessings. But that is radically different from knowing God. That's radically different from having a personal relationship with Him. And yet there are churches, there are entire denominations, there are pastors, quote unquote, who speak of this as if it was a possibility. You wouldn't say it, they wouldn't say it so abruptly. But they speak of a God who cares nothing about your holiness, cares nothing about your transformation, a God who will sign off on all of your desires, whatever they are. He just wants to bless you. He doesn't reign over your words or your attitudes or your actions. There's a God somewhere that they speak of who simply wants to give you a good life. And it appeals so much to our own flesh have all the blessings of God without a personal relationship with Him. Some of you look around and it looks to you that there are people who seem to get God on those terms. They wear the title Christian just like you do. And you watch them and you go, I'm a little confused. Maybe I'm jealous. Because if they are headed to the promised land like I am, 
How come they go there seemingly with no conscience? They drink underage. They mess around with people they're not going to marry. All while making good grades and people respect them and they get everything that they try out for. And all along they trumpet, well, it's because of Jesus. Hashtag blessed. If you're an adult, you watch how they treat other people. How they disrespect people and how they conduct business and how they manipulate others. And you watch as they skirt the rules and they rise to positions, not by merit, but by good connections. And you feel confused and you go, how did they get God without a relationship? God has just really blessed me, they say. And you wonder, how? How does God allow them to carry the name Christian without any conviction, without any transformation? And brothers and sisters, you can look at this text and say, do you want the blessings of God if you don't actually have a relationship with the Lord? Let's be clear. When you look at chapter 33, God is is not offering to give this generation eternal life apart from a relationship with Him. He's actually testing them to see what do you desire? Would you be content with safety and prosperity and earthly promised land? Having chosen the golden calf, would you be willing to settle for the blessings without my presence? So the text would encourage you, don't be jealous of those who carry the name Christian. If they have no evidence of the Holy Spirit, it is far better to know the Lord than to chase the world and label it blessing from God. Verse 4, people heard this disastrous word. They mourned and no one put on his ornaments. And in fact, what's happening here is a, is a cultural comment. That is, people wear jewelry. They wear adornments when they're celebrating. And verse 6 says, the people stripped themselves of their ornaments from here forward for a moment, a precious moment. The people seem to get it. And they take this posture of mourning. We cannot celebrate the blessings of God if He he withdraws from our presence. Moses calls it a disastrous word. And we don't know how long the Lord caused this to hang over them. They don't even know what the Lord's doing. But it's a test. It's an invitation. It's written here for your instruction. Would you be content without his, with His blessings or do you sincerely want to know God through Christ? So friends, trust the Lord even when He feels far away. We have a change of plans and now we have a distant tent. Now, liberal scholars look at verses 7 through 11 and they say it doesn't fit. Surely somebody added this portion in later because it's a change of subject. I think that is silly. In fact, what Moses has done is create a perfect way to highlight the tension of the moment. The Lord told His people that He would not be going with them, and they are in a state of sorrow and mourning. And modern readers read this portion, and they go, well, why doesn't God just resolve the tension? If you're a Christian, you know why God doesn't solve the tension. Because this is exactly what it feels like in real life. I'm waiting Where are you, Lord? What are you doing? In fact, this is classic Yahweh. 
to teach his children to wait so that you and I have a sense of what it, what it feels like, what it seems like in your mind if the Lord is for a moment far away. What was it like after the warning of verses 1 through 6? Well, it was like this. The Lord did not immediately resolve it. The people could have a a tent complete with all the imagery that I described earlier. They could have a tabernacle. They anticipated experiencing God in their midst. But here's what happens. When you refuse to wait for God to show Himself on His own terms, when you want God on your own terms, you actually get not more of God, but you get less of Him. And you are here standing with these ashes of your burned idol on the ground. And you kick it and you go, where is the Lord? He feels far away. Verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. To be clear, this is not the tabernacle. Moses is setting up another kind of tent where he goes out and he meets with the Lord but it's another aspect of the test. It's a, it's a summons of faith. You want to seek the Lord. Well, he's not in the camp. You can go out where he is, but he's not coming near to you. You want to seek the Lord? Then go to Moses. Ask for his intercession. But where is he? He's outside the camp. God will still give you guidance. Moses can still come into the presence of the Lord and ask for help. But this is not the tabernacle. This is not in the center of the camp. Moses can go meet with the Lord, but you can't. No one else comes close. They stand, they watch, they can worship from a distance. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. To be clear, everything in chapter 33 when it speaks of Moses and God is is stretching the language to to the deepest point. It's a figure of speech. It's an example of how insufficient language is to describe God. God doesn't have a face like man. But whatever distance the people experienced during this season, Moses doesn't have that same distance. And the people could see that. And in this way, those who wanted to know the Lord experienced a genuine sense of longing while they watched from their tent. And and so faith would grow for them while they made the effort if they did to go outside the camp, they would, they would say, I want to identify with Yahweh. I want to ask for his help. And others were left with another option. Well, it's actually kind of comfortable if he's far off. If we can just get a distant glimpse of him, as long as he'll answer my questions and, and let me file my complaints. You wonder if some people find this arrangement more appealing. Because maybe if God dwells outside the camp, then he doesn't come near to infringe on your life. Here's another warning for you and me. It was their sin that caused him to distance himself. But did they like it this way? Would you? 
be content with a distant God who would give you insight on how to handle your difficult circumstances, who helps you figure out which colleges you need to apply to, which jobs you could accept, which person you should marry. How many of us treat the Lord this way even now? Maybe you don't want a face-to-face relationship with the Lord. You just want a, a God that you can pray to whenever you have problems that you can't solve. To be clear, when you perceive that the Lord is distant from you, it actually doesn't mean that he's left you. It is, in fact, an invitation for you to learn to trust him, to seek him where he is outside the camp. The confession says that God allows this to make us aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of my own heart. And then to raise me to a closer, more constant dependence on the Lord for your support. Do you see, if, he, if you get the sense that the Lord is outside the camp, it's a summons to come and seek the Lord in faith, to, to cry out to Him, I, I can't hear you, I don't know where you are, Lord, I feel that you are distant. Trust the Lord even when He feels far away. So we have a change of plans and a distant tent. We'll close with a comfort in hearing. What did Yahweh and Moses talk about in this tent? Well, these are the verses that tell us. The themes are marked by repeated words. To to Moses, those words to the Lord in verse 11, they begin with the word see, and it's something like, see here, God. And then on the other end of the passage, verse 23 holds it together. God says, my face shall not be seen. So one of the matters that Moses spoke to the Lord about was his longing to see him. Why is that such an important theme? Because even if the golden calf is a twisted attempt to see God, the longing to have a God who is visible is a longing which has been given to us by God. Why? Because in Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They enjoyed the Lord free from sin. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, many of you have heard this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And so the word for see occurs seven times, and the word for face occurs seven times, but so does the word for favor and grace. Moses makes three requests of God, and they all deal with those themes. They all address the the tension of the text. What if God was to send them on their way and and simply watch from a distance? Moses' three requests are these. Number one, will you be with me? Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. You've also said, I found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. Why is Moses confused about who will go with him? I mean, it's an angel, right? No. Standing in the middle of the desert, looking toward the promised land, Moses would tell you there is a massive difference between an angel going with me and Yahweh going with me. And he keeps using the phrase, to know you, to know you, 
to know you. God, if I know you more, then I know that you will be with me. Teach me what you're like. Teach me your heart. Teach me your mind. J.I. Packer published Knowing God back in 1973. And in it, he asks this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in this life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives knowledge of God? What's the best thing in this life bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. It is a request on a plate made of faith. He lays it before the Lord. He says, it's not enough to have the promised land without your presence. It's not enough to have your blessings without knowing you. And one Old Testament scholar says, we know God by learning his ways, his revealed will, his standards, his methods, his benefits. We know God through his word in an objective way, not through subjective emotional means. The question, will you go with me? The answer, verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Why does God say it like that? Because there is no real lasting rest apart from knowledge of God. Apart from the certainty that God is with you. Secondly, will you be with us? Verse 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So in light of the sins of the people, God seems to have pulled his face back. But Moses still enjoys intimacy with the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What Moses is doing here is acting like a mediator. He repeatedly identifies himself with God's people. If I have found favor, I and your people. If we are distinct, I and your people. And Moses understands that God's grace is a part of his display of power and glory. He says, God, the world is is watching In fact, your name and your character will be known by how you redeem the weak and lowly, the stubborn and the stiff-necked. God's answer, verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. It's like a 180-degree turn again. But it's not based on the goodness of the people. It's based on God's favor toward their intercessor. Last request. Will you show me your glory? Verse 18. He's asking for sight. But you notice how the Lord answers him in verse 19. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So first, God says, my glory is my goodness. But secondly, he says, in this life, my goodness may not be seen with your eyes. But it will always be known by your ears. He says, faith, Moses, comes by hearing 
That's why God says, you want to see my glory? I'll proclaim my name, Yahweh. And then you notice how he explains his own character. Verse 19, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Have you ever read the New Testament? Do you know when we hear that phrase quoted again? Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is trying to explain this difficult doctrine of election. He says God shows mercy to Jacob. He didn't extend mercy to Esau. And Paul says, well, some people might accuse God of being unfair. It's a passage about providence. It's a passage about sovereignty. Sovereignty even over salvation is proven in Exodus 33. I'm going to have to make up a word to explain the point here. God's glory, God's goodness, and His Godness. The very essence of His being is found in the fact that He can extend mercy and compassion or He can withhold it simply because He is God and you are not and I am not. He says, Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set you on a rock. And then from that vantage point, veiled by my hand, you'll get a fleeting glimpse of my glory. He says, Moses, it's actually enough if you rest in the cleft of the rock. It's a beautiful Old Testament picture of a New Testament spiritual reality. And that is that this side of the cross, you and I see the glory of God, we see the goodness of God by standing on the rock, and that rock is Christ. The strange issue of seeing God's face, it it, it seems when you come to the end of chapter 33, well, it's really not resolved. And it's not for the moment Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God has caused light to shine in your heart to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We read John chapter 1. We have all seen His glory because we saw Christ. Now, until we reach the new heavens and the new earth, we will not see God face to face and live. But if you've seen Christ, then you have seen the glory of God. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And all of these things were written down for your instruction. Because when God feels far away, you remember, number one, it is not in getting His blessings, it's in trusting His character. Number two, When God feels far away, you must hang on to this better mediator. You don't have Moses pleading on your behalf. You've got Christ saying, Father, I've found favor in your sight. Look upon my children. Look upon your children with mercy and compassion. And then thirdly, when God feels far away, you stare in the face of Christ. Has God truly left me in the wilderness to die? Or is this a test, in fact, to strengthen my faith? That's how you and I may trust the Lord even when He feels far away. Let's pray.
Precious Father, we thank you for granting us the eyes to see in faith your glory through the face of Christ. I pray that you would bless your people with your word as it is planted in your heart, in, in our hearts by the ministry of your spirit. We pray that you will draw us near to you as we sing of the glory of Christ as the vision of the Holy God. We pray this in his name. Amen.